I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 9. We jump back into our study of the Gospel of John. We spent the summer looking at the parables, and here we go, diving back into where we left off in the Gospel of John. This chapter is amazing. This is an amazing chapter. Uh, I have longed for the day that I get to preach this chapter. I love this chapter. It's filled with everything. We're, we're, we're in the temple. We're in the streets. There's blindness. There's light. There's sight. There's darkness. There's eyes that couldn't see but can see. There's eyes that can see but can't see. It's just filled with majesty and splendor and glory. It's filled with it. And the whole Bible is. I love the Bible because the Bible is filled with stories and narratives and accounts that are true about suffering. This book is permeated with pain. This book doesn't shy away from difficult subjects. This book doesn't shy away from difficult topics. In fact, in the life of our Savior, he actually made things more difficult than they even needed to be. He goes out of his way to create controversy. Um, Even here, he's healing a man born blind, and and it's going to turn out that he healed him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are going to say, you can't do that. And I think, Jesus, why didn't you just wait till Sunday? He's been born blind. He's been blind all of his life. Why didn't you just wait one more day and there'd be less controversy? Maybe even no controversy. Jesus goes out of his way to make controversy because in the hard moments of life, more of Jesus is revealed. In those hard moments where we have to choose, God is revealing himself in greater ways. We're going to meet a man that's born blind. His parents gave birth to a a son whose eyes did not work. If you've ever been through any amount of pain or physical suffering, physical disability, especially if it's a child, nobody asked you if you were okay with that. We we didn't sign a, a release form when Tyler was born. To say, oh, by the way, he has a broken aorta and a broken heart that's going to need open heart surgery. Um, Would you please sign to release that? No, we were not told. We didn't know. And frankly, at that moment, we wouldn't have agreed to that. It just happens. Life happens. Pain happens. Suffering happens. And so the first question that everyone asks when that suffering, when that pain happens is what? Why? What's happening? Why is this happening to me? And my question to us this morning is how would you answer that apart from this book? How would you have an answer for somebody who says, why is suffering happening apart from this book? I I, I wouldn't have an answer. I would be completely lost if I didn't have this book to give us an answer. And I love this chapter because this chapter gives us an answer. It tells us what's going on. It tells us God's good design, even in disability. It tells us God's purpose in pain. We really started this chapter last week, even though last week we didn't get into this chapter. But we we set the chapter up by saying God is absolutely sovereign he's in control and he's absolutely good we went through so many passages on that he's absolutely always in control and he's absolutely always good he allows bad things to happen he allows difficult painful things to happen but that doesn't detract from his control and it doesn't detract from his goodness and we always know that in whatever happens for a believer he's working for god's glory he's working for our good he's working for our greatest satisfaction in him all because of the cross, all because he loves us with an undying, unwavering love. That helps set the stage for where we are this morning. And we're only going to get to five verses this morning, just by way of outline for where we are in John. John chapter 9, the first five verses, we need to slow down and we're going to develop a theology of what's happening here. We need to understand it very clearly. And then next week, we're going to look at probably 30 verses. This chapter has 41 verses. We'll probably look at 30 to 32 verses and just see the whole account as it flows. And then we'll end it when uh, the Pharisees come back and speak to Jesus at the very end. So we're going to slow down this morning, and I think it's necessary to do that. 
then we'll speed up and we'll see the whole account together next week. And it's an amazing, amazing account. But to set the stage for chapter 9, just remember where Jesus was in chapter 8. He was in the temple. Go back to verse uh, 58. He said a couple things that were very challenging. He said, I'm the light of the world. If you are not following me, you're in darkness. If you're not following me, you're a slave. You aren't free. And then he says this, verse 58 of chapter 8 in the temple. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Um, That is a declaration that he claims to be God. And verse 59, they know it. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Verse 1 in chapter 9 says, as he passed by. So he's leaving the temple. There's a very tense moments. People have rocks in their hands and they're trying to pelt Jesus, but he's leaving. And they hate him because he claims to be God. And he has clearly backed that claim up time and time again, and he's going to do it here as well. So that kind of sets the stage for where we are. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read this whole chapter and just let it pour over your soul. And then we'll dive into the very beginning. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and he came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away, I washed, I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the Pharisees to the man who was formerly blind. And it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees were asking him again how he received his sight. And again, he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes. I washed, I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? There was a division among them. But they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, is this your son? who you say was born blind, then how does he see now? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said he's of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered them, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples now, do you? They reviled him. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us? 
So they put him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you now. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. God, this chapter is amazing. This, this chapter is so powerful. Every sentence, every word, God, I, I praise you for next week when we're going to get to spend time really feeling with the man and his parents and the Pharisees and Jesus and the disciples and really diving into the narrative and the story. But this morning we need to stop before we even dive in there and we need to see the disciples' question and Jesus' answer. And God, you know my heart. You know how for this entire summer, looking up until this sermon, I've been praying for our church. These are challenging words. They're true. They're clear. But they're challenging. And we need your help. We need your help to see what Jesus says and to savor it and to glory in it and to find our joy and our rest in it, and to not kick against it. God, even in a church that is as small as our church is, we know countless people who are suffering, who have suffered. We know countless people who, like this man, were born with a disability. We know countless people who have children who were born with a disability. And Jesus, you do not shy away from answering the question, why? This isn't the full answer. There's so many other places we could go. But this is the foundational answer. And so, God, I pray that by your grace we would trust that you would open our eyes and humble our hearts to trust in what you clearly have revealed and that we would cling to it with hope, with joy. Give us grace this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Just two points for our outline this morning, the disciples' question and the Savior's answer. The disciples' question and the Savior's answer. Verse 1, Jesus sees a man who is blind from birth. He's a man now, he's not a boy, so he's spent his entire life blind, and Jesus takes note of him. And we need to stop there in verse 1. As he passed by, as he's leaving the temple, we have to stop there and already say, Look at the compassion of our Savior. Remember what's happening just a couple yards behind him? He's got people picking up stones wanting to kill him. If I'm Jesus in this moment, I'm booking it. I'm sprinting as fast as I can to get out of the temple. And as he's leaving, he sees a man who is born blind, and he stops. And the disciples see Jesus see this man. The disciples see Jesus seeing this man. Look at the compassion of our Savior. He knows his time hasn't come. He knows he's not going to die now. He also cares for this man. Think of the agony that this man has gone through. Verse 8 tells us that he's a beggar. The neighbors come and they say, oh, he's the beggar. He's the one who used to sit at the temple and beg. It's been his entire life. He can't work. All he can do is sit at the temple and beg for mercy. His parents show up in this story, and I don't want to be too harsh on them, but frankly, I don't think that they're really nice people. (laughs) They kind of throw him under the bus, and we'll see that next week, and... And apparently they didn't have the means to support their child because they just let him go. Beg for yourself, fend for yourself. Or 
maybe they bought into the tradition at that time, the Jewish tradition, that if you are born with some disability, you're cursed by God, and they don't want cursed people living in their house. Either way, this man is... He's lived a life of agony, of suffering, of pain. He's begging by the temple. Why the temple? It's crowded. There's a lot of people. It's a good place to go if you're asking for money. Um, People are going to the temple to ask for forgiveness. So maybe as they are feeling the grace of God and feeling kind and righteous as they leave, maybe they'll be gracious to other people. Also, the tradition uh, that the Pharisees had set up is if you are going to earn your righteousness, you have to give alms to the poor. So perfect. If I'm going to the temple and I'm giving a sacrifice for my sins as I walk out, let's start fresh by giving an alm here to my, my little blind friend and take care of him. And look, God has favor upon me. There's a lot of reasons why. But the bottom line is Jesus stopped and he saw. He took note of this man. And the disciples take note of him taking note. Do you take note of suffering? When you're driving and you see somebody who has some disability, you tend to just look away. I don't even want to think of it. We tend to do that. We don't like suffering. We don't like disability. And that's a very natural response. But brothers and sisters, we're not natural people. We are supernatural people. We are Christians. We should stare at suffering. We should press into those that are suffering. We should press into those that are hurting. We should run towards them. If Jesus hadn't pressed into where this man was, the disciples wouldn't have asked the question, we wouldn't even be here this morning. Lean towards those that are suffering. You say, well, I I wouldn't know what to say to somebody. I I don't know. I'm sorry for you. Is that right? I don't know what to say. It's okay. If you're a believer and you have the Spirit, number one, the Spirit will help you in what to say. And number two, when you speak on your own, you'll mess up and make mistakes and you will be forgiven. But just because you don't know what to say doesn't mean that you should turn away. The disciples probably didn't know what to say. Verse 2, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples see a question when they look at a disabled man. They just see a question. What's going on here? Why is this happening? Jesus sees a man. And the disciples say, who is this guy? Let's just ask a question. They think there must be a reason. There must be a rationale for this. And so they ask. And my question is, where did they ask in proximity to this blind man? You guys know when one of your senses goes away, the other ones are heightened. So even if you're somewhere in earshot of this blind man, he probably hears this question. Hey, Jesus. Why is this guy this way? He must have sinned, right? His parents? Some consequence. He did something wrong. That is a terrible question to ask in earshot of this blind man. It's a terrible question. This is not the most compassionate thing to be saying next to this blind man. Um, Whoever the disciple was that asked this, and it says that they're all asking, so there's multiple questions put together. Maybe Peter started it. Whoever it was, they obviously didn't go through side by side with us. Um, They're struggling with their compassion. They're struggling with how to walk hand in hand with those that are suffering. And so they ask a terrible question. And Jesus is yet again merciful. He doesn't say, what are you? Stop asking. Quiet. Come out. I'll tell you over here. He is so kind. And he will be kind with you. When you press into suffering and you don't know what to say, he'll be kind. He'll be kind. Who sinned? This is their question, the disciples' question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? They see a question, not a man, and they're buying into Job's friend's theology. There's a causality to this. There's a reason why this happened, and they split it up into three main questions. Uh, It's a consequence of sin, of this man or of his parents. So, number one, who sinned? Notice they don't even start with any other preconceived idea. Their assumption is, if you are born blind, sin is the reason. Sin is the reason. Now, on the one hand, they're right. All suffering is a product of sin. When sin entered the world through the fall, the the world as a whole was brought down in a curse under the fall. It's waiting for the day when... All the suffering, all the pain is gone, Romans 8 tells us. 
So sin is the reason why bad things happen, why pain exists. But that's not what they're asking. That's not what they're asking. They're asking, it's a one for one. Somebody sinned and caused this specific. It's not sin in general or the fall in general. So Jesus isn't going to answer their question of causality. Who made this happen? Jesus is going to answer their question. He's going to rephrase it. He's going to uh, re-shift the paradigm around so that he can answer their question. He's going to give an explanation. But he's going to answer it not based on causality, but on purpose. Not looking back, who did this, that this would happen, but looking forward. It's for this purpose that this is happening. Now, we know the Bible is very clear. There are people that received physical problems because they sinned. Probably can think of a couple in your mind right now. Um, King Uzziah went into the temple when he wasn't allowed to, and what happened to him? Struck with leprosy. So his leprosy was a direct result of his sin. Uzzah, uh, God told the nation of Israel, don't touch the ark. That's why there's the poles there. The ark starts to fall. Uzzah touches it. What happens to him? He dies. So the suffering that happened is a direct result of his sin. Miriam. Miriam has leprosy because she fights and argues against and in pride sets herself up against her brother. So there are definitely places in the Bible where sin is a direct result or where suffering is a direct result of sin. But that's not always the case. Unfortunately, the Pharisees had designed a system that said if somebody is disabled or suffering or hurt or sick, it is a direct connection. There's a direct correlation to a specific sin. But that's not the case. They're asking this question with certain assumptions. John Calvin gives us three reasons why their assumptions are not helpful and don't work. So they assume because this man's suffering, just like Job's friends, because this man's suffering, he did something or his parents did something, there's a direct sin that is being judged by this suffering. That's not the case. And John Calvin gives us three reasons why it's, it's very unhelpful to assign the reason for suffering to a specific sin. Number one, he says, we see sin and its consequences far more easily in others than ourselves. So when somebody else is suffering, we go, well, they did something wrong. God's judging them. And when we're suffering, we're going, um, what's going on here? I'm a good dude. I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you getting mad at me? So he says, we err usually when we assign reasons for suffering to a specific sin, because we see it in others way more than we see it in ourselves. Number two, he calls it, uh, his phrase is immoderate severity. What that means is we are a very poor judge of quantifiable suffering. So if we look at somebody who has cancer, what meter, what metric system do we have to say, well, cancer is caused by this level of sin? How do we know what levels of sin there are in God's economy? How do we know it's more offensive to God or less offensive to God? That doesn't work. So since we have no meter for that, we can't say, well, this sin produced this sickness or this ailment. We can't do that. And number three, he says, Romans 8, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So believers, there's no condemnation for their sin anymore. It's removed. The wrath is gone. It's taken away. And yet believers still suffer. So we have to be careful if we instantly go to, well, your suffering is due to your sin. No, because there's no condemnation. God won't be punishing you by suffering. God does not punish believers at all. Now, again, there's natural consequences. If you go out and you rob a bank and and you get shot in the arm and you have to have your arm amputated, you can't say, there's no reason why this happened to me that I have no arm. Like, obviously, your sin caused that amputation. But that, those are the, the rare moments. Those are occasional. So they say, every moment is like that. Sin causes suffering. Specific sin causes specific suffering. One to one. So they say, who sinned? That's their assumption. And then they go to this man. This man sinned. Now the first question is, how, how could he have sinned to be born that way? And their answer, their tradition, their answer is their tradition, which says... In the womb, you can sin or not. And the Bible explicitly says that's impossible. Romans 9, before, while Jacob and Esau were in the womb, before they had the ability to do good or evil, God chose them. So 
no one sins in the womb. Doesn't mean you're not a uh, depraved person with a sin nature in the womb, but you're innocent as far as committing sin. You don't commit sin in the womb. Number three, so they say, okay, this is obviously sin. So is it this man or is it his parents? Is it his parents? Where did they get this idea? Just write this down. We don't have time to turn there. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. You probably know this verse. Jesus says, uh, the Father says, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Um, I, I give grace. And then he says, but I also visit um, the Father's sins to the third and fourth generation. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Pharisees had developed a tradition based on that one verse that the children can bear the punishment for the father's sins. That if dad sins in a certain way, children will be punished. It's not what that passage is saying. And I would encourage you to look at Ezekiel chapter 18. There's several places, verses 3 and 4, verses 18 through 21, where God says emphatically, stop saying that. That's not what happens. And he goes through a list. If a father does this, 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 and this, bad, evil, sinful things, would I ever punish the children for what he did? And he says, by no means. And he says it multiple times in Ezekiel 18. The soul who sins will die. I will judge you based on what you have done, not based on what your dad did. So, just to finish this question, what does, Ezekiel, or what does Exodus 34, 7 mean? I will visit the, the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. Here's what it means. Fathers, plural, the leaders of the nation, if they determine we're going to turn the nation this direction and they move it a certain direction and it's an ungodly direction and it starts to pull the nation down into ungodliness and wickedness, what God is saying is don't do that because it's going to take three or four generations to turn that ship back to me. Don't do that. That's the wrong idea. He's warning them. Individually, you need to make sure you are following me. But as a nation, you better make sure you're following me. We, we see that even in our own nation, right? It would take a couple of generations of righteous people to undo what's been happening in our nation. So the disciples' question is off base. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus' answer, number two, in verse three, Jesus' answer is you have given me two possibilities for, for the reason for what's going on, and neither of them is right. I love how Jesus just wipes out the entire Jewish tradition system, wipes out the entire religious system with one statement. This man is blind not because of anybody's sin. It's not because of any one person's sin. Now again, Jesus could have launched into a theology of suffering because of, of sin entering the world. Suffering exists because sin exists. If there was no sin, there would be no suffering. So the disciples kind of get it. But Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. It's not because of what this man did, or his parents, or anyone for that matter. This is huge. This means for us that somebody can have a severe, lifelong, congenital illness that has nothing to do with his sins, or her sins, or anyone else's sins for that matter. You cannot make that conclusion. And can we just be honest with ourselves as evangelical Christians? We have done damage to people with disabilities by saying, well, there's something that you did. There's something that happened. Maybe you've never done that. But we need to hear loud and clear, you cannot make that conclusion. This also means present suffering doesn't correlate with past sinning. Often. Again, there are times where it does, but often it doesn't. There are consequences, and those are more obvious, but most aren't clear. This also means there are healthy sinners in the world, and this means that there are absolutely incredibly godly people who are incredibly painfully sick. And above all, this means that you cannot walk into anyone's life and say, because you did this, you were going through this can't do that. Please don't let CBC be a church that does that. Oh, I, you're suffering, and I, I, I think I know why. It's because of this thing you did over here. We can't do that. 
This is what Jesus is doing to their categories. Their question is, what caused it? And he's going to answer that to a certain degree, but he's going to say, you're missing the entire point. It's not about causality. It's about purpose. Why is this happening? For the purpose, not why is this happening because of causality. It's not about past causes. It's about future purposes. So why is he blind? Verse 3, Jesus answers, it's neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it's so that, this is the purpose, this is the explanation, it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was born blind so that God would be glorified in him. Now, again, we know that sin is the reason suffering exists. Jesus could have gone there. In fact, I think he specifically says we can't go there right now because of time in verses 4 and 5. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. But he says this man was born the way that he was so that God would be glorified, so that the works of God would be on display. Now, I need to stop here and I need to raise an objection that I've read, that I've heard, and that maybe, maybe you yourself might struggle with. So you're telling me, and I don't think I'm telling you, I think God's word is saying this. This man, God allowed, permitted, ordained, caused, whatever word you want to use, God was involved in allowing this man to be born blind so that God would be glorified. There are many people who would consider that sentence an abomination. There are many people who would say, I have, no, I have no desire to follow a God who allows and ordains and permits and causes that suffering would happen so that his works would be seen and he would be glorified. And they will go to this verse and they will say, that's not what this verse says. It's not what this verse says. And they, they read it this way, that the end of the verse, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but, and they take the works of God portion of this sentence and they turn it into a command or an imperative. Um, uh, let God's glory be displayed here and now. So in essence, they take their objection with this passage and in order to get God off of the hook, they want to make Jesus say that God didn't plan it this way. It, rather, it just happened. God found out that it happened and said, we're going to turn this thing to glorify myself. In essence, Jesus would be saying, it wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. So because it wasn't, let's just let the works of God be on display here. And they turn it into a command. There's reasons that doesn't work. Grammatically, that doesn't work. It's not a command. But let me give you three reasons why I don't believe that I, 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 in the positive, I believe it's impossible to, quote unquote, get God off of the hook in this passage. I don't think he wants to be off of the hook. He is clearly saying, I am behind what has happened, and it's for my glory to be put on display. Three reasons why I believe that. Number one, the disciples are asking for an explanation for the blindness. I want an explanation. Explain to me why this is happening. If Jesus were not giving an explanation, if he was just saying, it wasn't that, but I know God's going to use it, right? If he was just saying, well, it's not those things, guys, but I know God's going to use it to glorify his, his name. He wouldn't be giving an explanation for why this man is blind. So it doesn't work. He would be avoiding the explanation altogether. Jesus would be skirting the issue and saying, I, I don't want to even talk about that. Let's just say that God's going to redeem it. Number two, God knows everything that is happening in the formation of a fertilized egg. He knows everything that is happening. He knits us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows it. He knows that if a certain sperm were to meet a certain egg, and they were to come together that there would be a glitch in the DNA. He knows that. There would be a glitch here, and that glitch would produce blindness. God knows everything, so he knows that. So the question is, when he allows it to happen, he permits it to happen, why is he permitting it to happen? We know that he knows it. Biblically, the Bible is abundantly clear that he knows. When my son had... A broken heart and a, a messed up aorta. 
That was a surprise to the doctors. It was a surprise to us. It was a surprise to everybody. They didn't know that in the womb. But it wasn't a surprise to God. God knew when our son was conceived, there's a glitch here in the DNA, and he's going to be born with a broken heart. He knew it. So the question is, why did he allow it? Why did he allow it? Why did he permit it? If he can stop it, which he can, why does he allow it? And if you are going to tell me that he just has no purpose, he's just, I'm just going to allow it. Suffering, evil, wickedness, I'm just going to let it happen. But with no purpose behind it, then you're telling me that God's just willy-nilly doing whatever he wants to do. And those, those words can't go together. God and willy-nilly don't work. God has purposes. So the question is, what is your purpose? Why are you doing it? Why are you allowing it? Why did you allow my son to be born the way he was born? Here's the reality. You cannot make people try to do this. It's impossible biblically. You cannot make God a finder of suffering. Like Jesus is walking by this man and goes, Oh, you're blind. I didn't know that. And I really want to heal you and cure you. You can't make God a finder of blindness. By the way, this is what we tend to do with the quote-unquote problem of evil or problem of suffering in the world. We tend to limit some aspect of who God is to answer this for ourselves. Okay, God is all-knowing. He knew this man was blind. And he's all-powerful. He could heal this man. He could have stopped this man from being born the way he was born. So we'll limit his goodness and his love. Oh, he must not be loving or good. Well, we talked about that last week. He's all loving. He's all good. Everything he does is good and just and right. Or we say, okay, he is all loving. And he is all powerful. But he's not all knowing. Because if he knew that that this egg was going to be fertilized in such a way, if he knew that, he would have stopped it because he loves us and he's all powerful to stop it. So we limit his knowledge of everything. Or we say, okay, he is all loving and he's all knowing but he's not all powerful. He's looking at our suffering saying, man, I wish I could jump in and protect and save and redeem, but he just can't. All of those answers of intentionally limiting some aspect of God's character are woefully wrong. God is all powerful. God is all wise. God is all loving. God is all good. God is all knowing all at the exact same time. So to get God off of the hook, so to speak, and say, well, he didn't know what was going to happen here, or he didn't plan it, he didn't permit it, he didn't know, that's not right biblically. And that goes to number three. Biblically, there's no reason that this could work. There's no way it could work. And I'll just give you two verses. You know them. Psalm 139, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You cannot go to a disabled person and say, but not you. Uh, We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit us together and formed us, but he didn't form you. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. God formed and wonderfully created this man who was born blind. God formed and wonderfully created my son who was born blind. With a messed up heart. And if that's not enough, Exodus 4.11. We've covered this many times. Exodus 4.11, God says, Who is it that makes man? Is it not I who makes man blind, deaf, seen, or mute? Is it not I, the Lord? God doesn't want to get off the hook. God says, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. But the question is, why are you doing it? And the answer is, I'm doing it so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this brings us to the ultimate point of, I believe, this chapter. Suffering can only have meaning in relation to God. Suffering can only have meaning in relation to God. Suffering with Jesus is not meaningless. But for this explanation to work in your mind, for this explanation to work for you, if God says, I am doing everything I'm doing 
for the sake of my glory. The only way that that works for you personally is if you say, I want your glory. I love your glory and I love you more than I love anything in this world. If you say, I love God and I love his glory and I love his character and I love his goodness far above my own health, my own kids' health, my own life itself, then when evil and wickedness and suffering and pain and trials come, you can say, I still have a purpose, I have a reason to rejoice because God's work is happening. But it doesn't work. This argument doesn't work for many people because God's not ultimate in their life. It's not going to work for you, and you will not be satisfied when God says, I'm doing this for my glory so that my work can be displayed. If you say, I don't care about God's glory being displayed. I want a healthy baby. I don't want this disability. I don't want this pain. I don't want this circumstance. I don't care about God's glory being seen in it. I want my freedom from pain. This is the whole point of the Bible. This is the whole point of why we exist. Hallowed be your name. Let your glory fill the earth as the water covers the sea. This is why we live life. This is why this is our mission statement as a church. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all things. Because if you value Jesus Christ above all things, the suffering that you go through, even though it's incredibly painful, it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. I have a good friend who's a pastor, and uh, there was a couple in his church. Found out they were pregnant. Very, very excited. And they went to the doctor. They did ultrasounds, and everything was going great. And when the baby was bigger and they could see more in the ultrasound, they found out that the baby had no lungs. And they told them, baby won't be able to live. Doctor said, we should just have an abortion. And these two believers, brother and sister in Christ, said, no. It's for the glory of God. And so they prepped and they planned everything that was going to happen when the baby was born. The wife gave birth to the baby and they knew this baby's only going to live for two minutes and they put the baby on her chest and, and they prayed and they sang and when they went back to the pastor the pastor weep, was weeping with them praying with them they said God is good God is good and he allowed us to have two minutes with our son. You cannot say, God is good and the suffering that I'm going through is not meaningless if you don't cherish the glory of God above all things. If you don't cherish God and his glory above all things, that moment would be a moment to curse God. How dare you bring this upon me? But oh, for believers, oh, we have so many in our church who say God is better than life itself. And when they go through suffering and trials, they say, God, you're better. And you're still good. We're all going to struggle. We're all going to struggle. The question is, how will we struggle? By the way, verse 3 Jesus says it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some people say, well, yes, because Jesus knew he was going to heal this man. And yes, it works that way, but I think it works the other way. Even if Jesus had not healed this man, I believe that it still would have proven true. This man was born blind for the glory of God. And I would point you to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Again, I'm so sorry, we don't have time to turn there, but you're familiar with it. Paul is praying, God, I have a thorn in the flesh. It hurts. It's suffering. I don't want it here. Take it away. Three times he prays, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God says, no. And he says, my strength, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So my work is displayed in your suffering. And I choose not to heal it. Often the power is seen in healing. That's why we pray for healing. We should pray for healing. 
but sometimes healing doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, the answer for why that suffering is still going on is still the same, so that God would be glorified and his works would be on display. Verse 4 and 5, we'll end here. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He had said that in chapter 8. What is he saying here? He's saying, we don't have time to keep discussing this theologically. This is just the foundation. There's a lot of other answers for the problem of evil. There's a lot more. So this is just the foundation. Jesus says, we don't have time to be talking about that. We have to be about ministry because night is coming. Uh, metaphorically, I am going to die. There is daylight happening now when I am in my earthly ministry, and I love to do the displaying of God's power by healing people. But night is coming when I will display the power of God by being crucified. My healing is about to end. But in the night when I am crucified, my displaying of the power of God is no less on display. Why does he go here? Why does Jesus go to this? Why does he go from this man born blind? Here's the reason. It's for God's glory, for the works of God to be put on display. And I'm going to die soon. Why does he go there? There's a number of reasons why I think he goes there. But I just wonder if maybe the initial question that the disciples asked who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? I wonder if that question didn't ring and resonate in the soul of our Savior. Because that question is going to be asked of Jesus when he is being slaughtered on a cross. Who sinned? What did he do that this would happen to him? And the answer is the same. This is so that the works of God would be put on display. And the answer is the same. He didn't sin. It's not his sin that he's dying for. It's my sin that he's dying for. And what's the purpose of it? What's the purpose of Jesus suffering on the cross? It's so that the works of God would be displayed and the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So in conclusion, just two questions, two questions for you. Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe, verse 3, Everything that God does, he does so that his glory would be put on display. And we talked about that last week in depth, why it's a good thing that he's working for his greatest glory to be put on display, why that's always only for our good. We know that. But for some people, this verse has just a little bit too much voltage for your theology. There's a lot of theological fuses that are blown because of this verse. So my question this morning is, will you rest in this truth and say, okay, I don't fully understand it. We never will because we have finite minds and God is an infinite mind, but this is clear and this is enough. I will savor the glory and the character of God on display even in the midst of my pain because I know he's working for something. He's working. And question number two, do you desire the glory of God more than anything in the world? Do you desire to see it? Do you desire to savor it? Do you desire Jesus more than anything that this world has to offer? Because if you don't, then when God decides to take that one thing for your good, you are going to struggle. And you're going to fight against it and say, no, how dare you take that from me? Again, this does not minimize the pain of suffering, but it does answer the purpose of it. God is good in his purposes and his designs for our pain. There's a, a song that was a, a very encouraging, helpful song for me personally when we were going through what we went through with Tyler. And again, I don't think that that was suffering by any means. I think that was a trial. It was a very light, momentary trial. God has been very gentle to me. And, and I know that some of you can't say that as much. I know that. So I've been praying for you. God has been gentle to me. And I pray that you would be steadfast in the truth of this verse, even though the winds blow hard around you. There was a song that encouraged me. It had a line that said, We want lives that prove that we really do believe. I want a life that proves that I really believe that Jesus is better than life itself. He's better than anything in this world. What's the only way we can prove that? Is if God starts taking things away in this life and we say, he's better. 
Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts, but he's better. We want lives that prove he's better. We want lives to reflect an unshakable joy in the Lord that allows us to embrace a life of suffering for his purpose and for his glory. We want to shout. We want to shout and make it clear with every fiber of our being that life with suffering, pain, disability, heartbreak, and immense loss is better with Jesus, infinitely better than a healthy body, no pain, no loss, no heartbreak, and no Jesus. And over every sorrow, over every loss, over every disability, over every heartbreak embraced in faith for the glory of God is written in blood-bought promises. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18. And ultimately, Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There's a day coming when that reality will finally be here. Faith turned to sight. And until that day, will you rest? Do you trust Jesus and do you love him more than anything in this world? To say, okay, I don't fully understand it and I never will and that's okay. But I know you're working everything that you're doing for your glory for my good, for my greatest joy, all because of the cross. He loved us and he gave his only begotten son for us so that that promise is true. One day, no more suffering. He suffered so that our suffering would always be meaningful and our suffering would always be temporary. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing text. And I pray that as we walk through pain and suffering, that we would stare at Jesus and cling to him, that our hope would be him. God, bring us back next week to see how Jesus now moves forward with healing this man and with showing that he is better by far than anything this world has to offer. And God, I pray for those in this room that are currently in the midst of suffering and And maybe, just honestly, these words aren't the help that they thought they needed. God, your spirit can open eyes to see the goodness of this verse. So please, God, turn despair into hope in this room right now. Turn sorrow into satisfaction. Turn fear into faith. Turn rebellion into rejoicing. And make our hearts long to glorify you and savor your goodness above all things. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen.